Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a returning guest. We have Dr. David Brendel, who co-founded Strategy of Mind as a psychiatrist. He's a certified executive coach, leadership specialist, and philosophical counselor based in Boston. He has vast experience as an executive coach and leadership trainer across the, a wide variety of corporate settings. He's an expert in applying cognitive psychology and leadership techniques in executive coaching and corporate training programs. And David writes about his approach in frequent articles for the Harvard Business Review, Huffington Post, and other publications. His newest book, co-authored with Ryan Stelzer, is called Think, Talk, Create, Building Workplaces Fit for Humans. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you to both of you, and thank you for having me back. Absolutely, man. And we were just talking about how great your first appearance was. So we are so excited to have you back. And so I want to start out with a quote and an excerpt from your book, because, well, this was honestly one of the most fascinating aspects of the book. And I had a hunch that this was written by you, David. So, I mean, I'm going to ask, but I, I'm pretty sure it is because this is obviously pretty psychiatric in nature. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read the excerpt, but then we'll talk about it. So this is on the section on frontal lobe. So I'm pretty sure David wrote this. So there have been a growing understand. There's been a growing understanding over the last few decades that attention deficit disorder in adults is a biologically based condition, often but not always presently, often but not always presenting initially in childhood that degrades a person's sustained focus on tasks such as reading and completing projects. The lack of attentional control often manifests itself in impaired executive functions, planning reasoning, problem solving, decision making, and cognitive flexibility. The disorder is often treatable with medications such as Ritalin, but it is not often, but it is not purely biological. Its severity is usually determined by the nature and difficulty of the task at hand, as well as, as well as by social cultural expectations. It becomes a clinical disorder when it gets in the way of social and occupational functioning and the individual seeks psychiatric help to manage the troubling symptoms. So this is, and you kind of go into the story of Brad, which I definitely want to talk about. You write, Brad's mental focus and sustained attention to work tasks were strong, and there was no indication that he had diagnosable attention deficit disorder, but he suffered with a related and deeply problematic, though still unrecognized and unnamed condition that we might label active inquiry deficit disorder. So this was so great because obviously I've never heard of active inquiry deficit disorder, but you know, the philosopher, the philosopher in me was like, holy crap, this sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so first of all, what is, I mean, and first of all, I guess the question is, was this your section of the book, um, which I'm going to assume is yes. And what is active inquiry deficit disorder? And obviously, in the case of Brad, how did it manifest in him? And how was it related to his inability to function as a good manager? Mm. Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you for that, that question. Uh, I, I can say overall, the book was uh, very much a co-authored project with Ryan, but it is true. I'm a psychiatrist and uh, maybe luckily for him, he is not a psychiatrist. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so I, I, I did I did author that section, but we, uh, Ryan and I both um, have talked quite a lot about active inquiry. And so when you bring up the uh, the made-up term active inquiry deficit disorder, which uh, I don't think anyone had ever heard of, including yourself, because um, that that was that was our own creation. Mm. Uh, if we're going to talk about active inquiry deficit disorder, well, it would make sense to start out by talking. Uh, about what active inquiry is in the first place, and then look at what what the deficit may be, which was certainly something uh, Brad, who is uh, a disguised uh, client, uh, but um, somebody well, somebody we worked with, and um, typical of many people we work with. So let me start by saying something about active inquiry, mm. and then talk about the uh, the deficit and how it uh, might be corrected. Uh, medication doesn't usually do the trick. So um, active inquiry, as we define it in the book, is a very well-defined, very self-disciplined methodology of asking open-ended questions. So active inquiry equals open-ended questions and some other facilitating statements in a conversation. Open-ended questions are questions that don't have an easy yes or no answer. So if you ask somebody at work, how's the project coming along? They can't appropriately answer yes or no. If you say, are you gonna meet the deadline? I need it by three. They could say yes or no. Mm -hmm. uh, they, may, uh, they may say something else, but um, the framing of the question is very different in active inquiry versus uh, closed-ended questions. So 
Active inquiry really um, is, a, is the theme running throughout the book as a solution to many of the uh, workplace and societal problems that we're, that we're all facing. So Brad <clears throat> really didn't have the skill of asking open-ended questions and it had a, had a deep impact on himself and the company, it was a tech company that he had co-founded many years ago and was very successful. It had grown to you know, dozens of employees over the years from three co-founders. Wow. And uh, Brad was <clears throat> somebody who got easily stressed and overwhelmed. <clears throat> he was incredibly technically adept. He was probably the smartest guy in the room from the tech standpoint. And he had developed the uh, products and continued to. But when it came to projects and relating to colleagues or direct reports, he kind of bar barked orders. If he asked a question uh, and somebody was saying something, you could tell just by looking at him, um, this was feedback from a lot of people that worked with him. You could see that he was just kind of waiting for them to finish talking so he could say what he already thought. So it was clear, and we all know that feeling when we're talking with somebody that they're, they're just chomping at the bit to say what they wanna say and are not taking in uh, what we're saying. We're all vulnerable to it. I know I am at times. Um, but when, when it rises to the level of what we saw with Brad, we might call it active inquiry deficit disorder. And it had a major impact on him. The workplace really became pretty toxic and hostile. Uh, people stopped inviting him to meetings because they were impossible to deal with. Or if he came to meetings, uh, meetings were pretty overwhelming and stressful and unproductive because he was just telling people what to do. And then the real meeting would happen after the official meeting and people. So there were a lot of workarounds. Exclude him, don't listen to him, meet separately, strategize uh, and kind of isolate him uh, the way you might you know, seal off an infection. Uh, and it, it was like an abscess. You know, the rest of the body is trying to protect itself and, 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 and encapsulate and fight it off, but they couldn't fight it off. Abscesses are difficult to treat medically without being surgically drained. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was ultimately what happened in the company with Brad. He was surgically drained uh, by being you know, pushed out of the company, mm -hmm. allowed to resign, we might say. Uh, but he had to move on. And he was extraordinarily upset and angry. It was his baby. It was the company he had co-founded and grown to its success. But he was never able to pivot to, uh, to being a true, well-related collaborator. Um, so it was post hoc that he came for, for some coaching. He had actually reached out about a year or two before and never pursued the coaching. Maybe it would have helped save the job. Mm -hmm. He explored it. He obviously wasn't um, ready to do it, but he was ready afterwards. Uh, and he was a wonderful guy. I mean, he was a you know, devoted family man, hard worker, highest level of you know, work ethic, commitment. I mean, he was, he was a good citizen, this guy. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was just kind of sad. But so the coaching got started and it was a little difficult to know how to help him develop active inquiry skills um, when he was no longer in a job. There wasn't mm -hmm. great context yet. He was thinking right. about his next career step and prospectively how he might do better next time. Oh, and so, then can I, can I also ask a really quick cool question? Was he also resentful at this point too? Or was he still resentful? He was still, he was still resentful. Okay. But, you know, what often underlies that level of anger and resentment is sadness and vulnerability. Right. Uh, and it's, it becomes a lot of like narcissistic bluster. But when you get to know the person well enough, what you really see is that they're kind of just emotionally falling apart, sad. Sometimes it's defensive against getting depressed. Right, right. You know, you're angry, you may not be so depressed. So some of the um, sadness and recognition and self-awareness started kicking in at, when he stepped away from the job and, and did some of the coaching. That, that opened up the possibility of him saying, what can I do differently? <laughs> that really didn't go well. And as much as I blame them, uh, it's my situation to deal with. But it was, uh, it was a little unclear at first how to get traction to help him practice how to relate differently instead of 
telling people what to do, facilitating more collaborative conversations that might help people with their own self-discovery process and building their own sense of agency and commitment to doing the right thing. So one of the fascinating things that kind of came up in a somewhat offhanded way was that he was having some struggles with a teenage son. Smart, nice kid, but he'd fallen in with the wrong crowd. Maybe some substances, Brad was really concerned about him. And so we recognized, hey, you know, here, here's, here's maybe a situation where we can practice some of this because you're trying to manage your son, so to speak. You really care about his success. You want him to be a hard worker. You want him to be productive and satisfied in his life, engaged in his life. You can't just go tell him what to do. Everybody knows that parents just can't go in and point a finger and say, stop smoking pot. Stop hanging out with that group. You're not allowed to go out. It's, very, it's kind of hard to say that to a 17-year-old. They have ways to get out of the house and do whatever they want, really. So... Um, we actually took that as an opportunity to start practicing active inquiry. And so the conversation, he would take long walks with his son, instead of just yelling at him in the kitchen and storming out, we agreed, take some long walks with him, take him for a drive, go for a weekend somewhere, do something that your son is interested in. And in the flow of that, often in movement, take, take a drive, do, do, you know, do an activity, he really started practicing asking questions. How's it, how's it going with your friends? How are they doing? So some of it got discussed in displacement. What's going on with your friends? What do they like doing? What do they like doing when, when you hang out? And it, it, it kind of um, uh, took it away from being a direct angry head to head between the two of them mm -hmm. and opened up a conversation. And, and you know, for the first time really, maybe in their father son relationship, um, there was much more, um, you know, just kind of sharing about what was actually really going on. And Brad even opened up about some of his own stuff with work. Uh, and his son made a very positive transformation as a result. They got closer and he saw, you know, his son actually was thinking. His son, it turned out his son actually was, was worried about who he was talking about. It was actually very reassuring to Brad that he, uh, you know, when he saw that his son actually was having some of the same questions and concerns that he was. And this very much directly applies to, to the workplace. Most people at work want to do a good job. They are working hard. They may, their workload may be too high. They may not have the organizational skills, but they're actually trying to do well. So just like with Brad, it's usually much more effective, except with a tiny percentage of people who may be a bit, you know, toxic or narcissistic or sociopathic in the workplace, a small percentage that don't want to do a good job or are purposely undermining things. Mm -hmm. Most people like to be asked, how's it going? What's on your mind? What are your concerns? What's getting in the way? How can I help? Who else can help? Would you, you know, how, how can we, you know, rethink the priorities and the timelines here? Would, uh, that usually leads to much more engagement. It certainly did with Brad and his son. And then as he transitioned into a new job, was a much better fit for him. He was practicing those skills and, uh, uh, and to this day, it continues to go much better. He's got, he had a soft landing uh, in a new job with a different level of engagement. So he had active inquiry deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. It was treated with coaching uh, and very rigorous self-discipline practice in both personal and professional settings of um, uh, more open-ended and collaborative discussion. Right. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, uh, probably from his son's perspective, he felt like, oh, my dad is actually investing in me, as opposed to ordering me around or asking me yes or no questions. He asked me open-ended questions so that I can invest and, and, and tell him more about myself. And it's great that he cares. And maybe we can have a conversation and move this forward. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. And then how did, how did you guys get to that point? Because I'm going to assume, and I think this is a decent assumption that he was a perfectionist, right? And the way he saw it in his mind was that, oh, I'm great. And everything that I'm doing, it's great. And it's everybody else's problem. So how did you guys kind of, well, obviously with his kind of consent and, you know, his inclusion here, how did you guys break down that barrier? Because I mean, this is maybe not narcissistic personality disorder, but it is an aspect of narcissism and very hard to treat. Yes, exactly. Now, again, you know, 
we think of narcissistic people as really toxic people right. and probably about one or two percent of them really are and uh, many of them are in prison they have no remorse they're actually psychopaths or sociopaths right. uh, and criminals he wasn't a criminal and the vast majority of people with narcissistic tendencies aren't they have some kind of underlying uh, fear vulnerability or insecurity one of the things that was interesting that turned out with him is he just biologically was not wired for a couple of different reasons um, uh, he, he just wasn't somebody who easily smiled uh, you know we know we do know some people right who are so they just it just comes so naturally they're so warm and engaged their eyes light up they smile he didn't have that kind of um, uh, affect and uh, there were actually some identified reasons for that which he he eventually brought up and uh, shared that really go back to uh, uh, to uh, childhood in a, in a medical condition that uh, made it difficult uh, so it, it takes time and it actually takes a coach not having active inquiry deficit disorder to just keep asking um, so you know you were so right sounds like you're the smartest person you were the best software engineer you were the hardest worker let's just stipulate that all those things are true but what went wrong it you know you weren't the highest performer when it comes to getting people to perceive you that way right uh, and that came through because it was a you know i did 360 interviews spoke to uh, six seven eight people after he left the job what happened mm-hmm. and it it, and and the uh, and, and some of this some of the sentences are described in the chapter about what people said. He never listens. Um, he he already knows the right answer. You can tell he's about to. He wants to cut you off to say what he thinks. He doesn't really have my best interests in mind. And one of the most devastating uh, parts of the feedback, also mentioned in the chapter, was somebody said, "The company's thriving since he left." Um, so again, that was a huge narcissistic blow with the angry reaction at first, but then some of the sadness and with some support of the coaching, and again, not accusations, trying to help him not be accusatory and hostile toward other people. I gotta make sure I'm not doing that either, even when I'm giving him tough feedback. Um, so it's, it, it, the, the coach needs to be really direct and clear, but also soften it with, you know, there's something you can do about this mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and provide some hope. So uh, it's not a linear process. It took weeks and months to get to some of that, but he, he did end up coming around to realizing that some of his own personal vulnerabilities were what was driving that and he needed to uh, develop some insight and change there. And, and the stuff with his son really made, made such a huge difference because that, that was so palpable to him. The relationship had become so tense and unsatisfying to both of them, and it changed to something he never could have imagined. No, I mean, that's great. And, and to maybe to highlight the importance of active inquiry more, um, I'm not sure if you wrote this story about uh, Raymond in the book, mm-hmm. um, but uh, if you did, um, would you mind sharing how his story is, is important as related to active inquiry in, in the workplace? Raymond was the patient who committed suicide. Right. Yep. Yes. Um, we do show throughout the book that uh, uh, actually uh, the act- active inquiry deficit disorder actually can make people vulnerable to literally killing themselves. Uh, uh, and in even more frequent episodes to have kind of a soul murder, <laughs> uh, just feeling totally disengaged and burned out in the workplace. Yeah, but the, the Raymond story is, uh, was remarkable. Uh, he, he was somebody who had sunk into a really severe uh, major depression and was hospitalized with suicidal thinking and, and uh, kind of a breakdown in his mental organization and even some psychosis. Uh, and long and short of it is he came in, he was uh, a psychiatric rating scales for depression were administered and they give kind of a numerical score. One of them is called the Hamilton depression scale, uh, HAMD for short. And his score was very high as is typical of hospitalized depressed patients. It was over 30. Uh, 
most of us have some depressive symptoms like, you know, low energy or I'm not sleeping as well as I want to, or my appetite is too much or too little, uh, or I'm really down on myself. So most people score around a three, four, five. None of us are completely free of that. But when it's in the 30s, that usually means people are in the hospital. Mm -hmm. so they're in the hospital, it's treated with antidepressant medication and also a supplemental medication for some of the disorganized psychotic thinking. And over the course of a couple of weeks, he got a lot better. His HAMD score went down to the double digits. Uh, and so at that point, what happens? The treatment team says, wow, the medications really work great. Uh, now we can discharge him. He can go home and, you know, we'll get a prescription and keep taking some of the medicine and have an appointment with the therapist. That, that's the typical arc of a psychiatric hospital admission in 2021. Average length of stay is about a week and a half or two. So he was very much within that, that, uh, that typical uh, range. So he leaves and three days later, the treatment team learns that he committed suicide. Uh, so that led to a lot of soul searching, a process uh, that's called uh, morbidity and mortality conference where um, it's a peer review where uh, closed door, legally privileged, which means whatever's said or written down in that conference is not discoverable by a court. So there's no concerns about um, people being fired or malpractice suits. So it led to actually lots of open-ended questions about what the heck happened to Raymond. Right. He was really depressed, he got medication, then he wasn't depressed and then he killed himself within a few days. Uh, Raymond's not here. <laughs> anymore. He wasn't there to ask exactly what happened, but it became pretty clear in the, you know, post-mortem analysis, sometimes called a psychiatric autopsy, that um, the, the team didn't adequately probably ask him questions. Right. Uh, and so they just administered the rating scale. It was all numerical. Right. Quite possible that the medication, may, the medication may have given him more energy, which sounds good, but not if you're suicidal, right. then you actually have the energy to take an overdose or hang yourself or throw yourself off a bridge. You might be better off at that point being unable to get out of bed. That would be safer. Um, so sometimes we've seen this, that um, antidepressant medications activate people before their suicidal thinking or plans go away. Mm -hmm. And part of why he perked up also may have been that he came to a, a decision. Um, now he was relieved. He's not going to suffer anymore. He, uh, it looked like he had a very specific plan. Uh, and uh, again, that's another reasonable hypothesis, not a conclusion, because we, as I said, we can't confirm it for obvious reasons. But uh, there, there's a reasonable chance. And sometimes people who have committed suicide, uh, who have attempted suicide but not succeeded, will later say, yeah, the whole reason I perked up was because I made a decision to get the hell out of this life and I'll be relieved. So then he can go around smiling and high-fiving people as he, uh, as he leaves the hospital. Uh, and he, he obviously did, did complete the suicide. So we talk in that chapter again about close-ended versus open-ended questions. So the close-ended questions, very typical in psychiatric care. Are you suicidal? No. Feeling unsafe? No. Will you continue to take your medication? Yeah, uh, we made an appointment for you with your therapist next Thursday. Will you go? Yes. Those are all closed-ended, yes, no. Other questions are things like, um, if you start feeling unsafe, um, you know, who can you reach out to? Um, what would be the warning signs to you that things are going downhill again, right? Can't answer that yes or no, it prompts a it prompts conversation that may have been helpful to Raymond to kind of think through, well, you know, actually you do have a few people I could call. Uh, so there's the more, there's the um, generation of thinking right. that could have happened with Raymond by the questions. The other thing that that can lead to is more information for the clinician. Who, who could you reach out to? Well, if there's no answer, maybe he shouldn't leave so soon. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's an answer that kind of feels superficial, Maybe he shouldn't leave so soon. If he's asked the question and he starts fidgeting and sweating or wants to leave the room, 
well, maybe that should be explored some more. Maybe he's not ready. Uh, so whether it's a verbal or nonverbal response, the open-ended question provides a lot more data that could be used clinically. So the chapter really, uh, and it's not in, in any way uh, 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 intended to assign blame to any clinician because all the clinicians were practicing within the medical standard of care these days. That's how it goes. Closed ended questions, documentation, no suicidal or homicidal ideation. Reports willingness to continue medication. That's all you need uh, to discharge somebody. There's no requirement for active inquiry. Right, and asking questions like, where do you see yourself in a year from now, five years from now? Yeah, that, that was that one generation of, of thinking. Yeah. Oh, and, and you know, this reminds me. So we had a psychologist named Dr. Margaret Rutherford on the show last, I think it was no, no, not November, December. And so she wrote a book on perfectionism. And one of the it's best- called uh, Perfectly Hidden Depression. Yeah, Perfectly Hidden Depression. So one of the, she told this really great story. I don't exactly remember the name of the, um, I mean, it wasn't the real name of the client anyway. So she told the story of this person who, so they went in for a psychiatric evaluation. And so it was the same thing. Like you got the standard depression scale and the questions were like, are you suicidal? Are you planning on committing suicide? you know, no, no. And then a week later, this person had tried to attempt and then so they were hospitalized. And so the psychiatrist actually comes to see this patient. And the psychiatrist asks, like, I don't understand, like, what went wrong? Like, you, you told me you weren't suicidal. And then so the client says to him, yeah, 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 but you never asked the right question. And so the guy's like, okay, what's the right question? If I were suicidal, would I actually tell anybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. because he, yeah. So because he was a perfectionist when he came to see the doctor, the idea was like, you know, oh, I, I'm great. Right. So, you know, the doctor's like, Hey, how are you feeling? He's like, no, I'm good. Uh, okay. Are you depressed? Uh, a little bit of sadness, maybe a little bit of fatigue. So the point is some people hide it. And if you don't ask questions about, you know, related to perfectionism, I mean, not necessarily as a syndrome, but as a particular, whatever condition, if you don't ask questions related to perfectionism, then the idea is it's often hard to find those answers. Cause some people, if they believe that they have to present like in a perfect sort of way to you obviously you know it's a part of depression where the person often tries to hide it um and hides how they're feeling in general and so what they're going to do is they're just going to say yeah i'm fine and then you know kind of a week later or two weeks later whatever it is when that person does attempt you're like scratching your head and you're wondering i don't get it but yeah man sometimes it's like if you kind of sit with the person and you kind of explore a little deeper and ask them questions that you know don't really necessarily fit those standard forms you'll get a lot out of them and you'll be able to save a life I mean, there, there are so many important points embedded in that story you just described. Certainly one of them is that these types of open-ended questions don't come easily. They need to be planned at times. So that would be where a clinician or a clinical team would, might sit and think, what are the right questions here? It can't just be the rating form and it can't just be, are you suicidal or not suicidal? So that, and that, that's, a, that's a really brilliant kind of well-sculpted question. And um, with well-practiced clinicians, they may, they may come naturally, but even with the most sophisticated, experienced psychiatrist or therapist, it does require some thinking and pre-planning about how to bring those questions into the, into the interview. One of the other really important points here is that one of the tragic elements of that is that mental health clinicians are trained to ask those questions. They are compassionate and smart individuals who have thought about this stuff before. The vast majority of them are actually pretty good at it. Uh, but there's a systems problem here. They have too many patients. There are too many requirements for documentation. They're constantly being bombarded with paperwork and uh, all kinds of regulatory requirements. Billing. I, I know in my own experience, even many years ago, before it got as bad as it is now, I couldn't believe it. I would go in for like 10 hour shifts on an inpatient psychiatric unit. I'd have maybe six or eight patients. And I realized that at least 90% of my time was not spent with the patients. Yes. I was filling out paperwork. Yep. I was looking at labs. Um, I was going to unnecessary meetings. Mm -hmm. My forms weren't being filled out in a way that the insurance company could be billed at the highest. Yes. yes. Going back and revising things. Yeah. Uh, utilization reviewers, as they are called, are constantly coming by. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. We can't bill for this. We can't bill for that. Yeah. Right. So instead of going and talking with my patients some more and asking the open-ended questions, 
That's what I found myself doing. That has only gotten worse over the last number of decades and years to the point that most mental health clinicians are uh, at best really stressed by that stuff and in worst case scenarios really burnt out and cynical already about the job. Yes, so, oh my it's God. Problem. It shouldn't be blamed on the individual. In most cases, it's a systems failure. I could tell Leon relates. Oh my All God. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I, I remember, oh my God, last week I ended up having a conversation with a client that I was actually going to stop seeing because I couldn't figure out how to like build his insurance. They ended up changing just the way they do the way that the system operates altogether. And so I was like, look, man, I'm really sorry, but I don't think I can take it anymore. But thankfully I figured it out. And then eventually we kind of talked it out and everything is fine. I'm still able to see him, but I was this like literally this close to stopping treatment because I was like, I don't know how to build this anymore. So my trying to figure out the system was first of all i'm so stupid when it comes to insurance so stupid so i'm trying to figure it out like these system and they keep keep updating them to the point where like there's no guide for it or if there is they'll send you some manual that you're not going to have the time to read so nobody talks you through these things and you're clicking on stuff and you're poking around on the website trying to figure out why direct deposit doesn't work and like you know <laughs> how they can maybe mail you checks instead and then you have to call them and then when you call them you're on hold for like 20 minutes and then you need this form from the bank, which the bank doesn't have for some reason. Yeah. But then you speak to another person at the bank and they happen to have the form. And... Yeah, it's true story. True story. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you know, it's it's so true. And I think, you know, every mental health clinician um, these days has run into that problem and usually in really, really time consuming and distressing ways. I often find myself left questioning, is the insurance company just totally disorganized and on the verge of incompetent mm. or are they purposely doing this to not have to provide services and save money because as right. soon as you um, create all this red tape right. and lead to the kind of situation you're dealing with in some cases the treatment actually does stop right. or at least stops for a period of time that's financially beneficial to their bottom line it's morally bankrupt and probably not good for the, the long-term health of the insurance company because of the reputation damage that comes. Um, and again, it's, it's hard to suss out which it is, but it's somewhere on the spectrum from disorganized and incompetent to nefariously profit-driven. Right. Okay, so this is a great segue into the quantitative mindset, right? Something that we started yeah. talking to Ryan about. So how is it that, okay, when you guys kind of come in, right, and you you do your presentations, and you have like these great workshops, right? Um, okay, how do you then do it? How do you shift the company's mindset from a purely quantitative one to saying like, hey, no, guys, we should actually start thinking about the future, because in the long run, and overall, once you ruin your reputation, you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, sometimes we're doing that with individual um, leaders or executives to um, at, at least begin to ask the questions or have some insights about thinking more about long-term gains and, as you said, preserving reputation versus the immediate quarterly uh, or monthly earnings report. There's, there's tons of pressure to have those reports look good. So again, some of it's a systems problem uh, in, 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 you know, in, how, in how corporate governance goes and how decision making is structured and some of it is you know external pressures from shareholders and that type of thing uh, but whether it's with individuals or with groups our workshops are again focused around open-ended questions we don't know the company in depth but what we can bring is a process of reflection and conversation to the company so we would we may ask again in an individual group setting Let's, let's think and talk this through. What are the pros and cons of making all the decisions based on this bottom line versus uh, um, coming across as serving the community in a way that um, might not optimize the bottom line this month, but positions you over the coming year or two to maybe win more business? How do you guys think about that? Right. Uh, sometimes they're so busy and they're so stressed and they're so task oriented that they have actually haven't stepped back and asked the question. Now, some of this may come into a strategic planning process and we sometimes do it under the rubric of strategic planning, but we really prefer to do it under the 
rubric of, um, of coaching and leadership development uh, and not having it be as mechanistic, but more, uh, more reflective. One of the stories we mentioned in, uh, in, in, uh, in a section that has to do with behavioral economics is the question of what should stores, whether it's a small mom and pop shop or Home Depot, what do you do with the pricing of shovels mm-hmm. major snowstorms? Right. Now, if you go with the traditional microeconomics that was taught for decades, classic 20th century microeconomics focused on rational self-interest and supply and demand, it's kind of obvious. More people are going to need shovels. Um, and we only have a limited number of shovels. So demand is up. Supply is stagnant or down. Raise the prices. Right? Kind of obvious. I mean, that would be an easy answer on a multiple choice test uh, for any student in an economics course. Well, it turns out many of these stores and companies have found what you should do is just the opposite. You should give the shovels away for free. (laughs) Uh, Or at the very least, keep the price the same or reduce it a bit. So why? Uh, The short-term profitability goes down that might not mean as much to Home Depot as it means to the small mom and pop shop, but what does it breed? It breeds trust, community cohesion, engagement, likability. And this, these are the lessons of behavioral economics that people in an ongoing way, the way they make choices about spending are not based on a rational microeconomics analysis. It's based on um, uh, emotion. Right. And if you can breed positive emotion, you're likely six months, six years later to have that customer come back and maybe make a much bigger purchase. Uh, so we try to bring some of the lessons of behavioral economics, but we're not, beha- we're not behavioral economists and we're not coming and doing economics lectures for people. We maybe in, in, our, in our presentations or in our coaching are giving these types of examples along the lines of the shovels that I just gave, but then saying, how does that work for your company? What, what might make sense? You're doing it a certain way. Where might you think of, if anywhere, that you could make that kind of shift to giving the shovels away for free and breeding more engagement, whether it's with your employees or your, or your customers. Right. I love that. And that reminds me of the Hume quote where he said something along the lines of like uh, reason is the slave of the passions, where the idea is that essentially we kind of make decisions more so based on our feelings rather than, you know, our kind of the rational aspect of our mind rather than it's like what I think more so than anything that behavioral economics has taught us is that most people make emotional like business and, you know, let's say financial decisions as opposed to more rational ones where it's like they think of reason in terms of like, okay, how do we make, how do we, you know, sort of set it's not about goal setting, but how do we create a plan to meet the goals or create, or let's say, you know, fulfill the goals that we've set for ourselves, but mm-hmm. the goals essentially are emotional. So it's like, it's take podcasting, for instance, right? We put in a lot of effort for the guests who put in for the effort for us, right? So it's like, if we have a guest on and that guest seems to really enjoy the show, let's say, you know, they spread, you know, the episodes around, they might comment and DM us and say, Hey, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this episode. If we have them again next time, we're going to exponentially put in more effort for that guest than let's say maybe for either a newcomer or somebody that maybe sort of enjoyed the appearance, but not really. So there's like a kind of like a standard that we set. So if we really like a person, we're going to say to ourselves, okay, we're really going to put in the effort to promote their book, their documentary, whatever it is that they have going, uh, whatever, whatever it is that they have out. And the reason is because emotionally speaking, there's this connection that makes us say, you know what, I have an obligation to this person because this person seems to sense that they have an obligation to me. And I feel like a lot of times when we're making business, business decisions, maybe not most of the time, but a lot of the time, it seems like we feel a debt to the business in terms of what they provide for the community that we have to kind of provide in turn for them. Right. And that's not just the right thing to do, but in many situations, some of which we talk about in the book, the long-term financial consequences are much more positive. Right. can enhance profitability. So we're not we really wanted to be careful in this book to not say we're not just here to lecture you on virtue or moral issues. What We don't have the answer for your particular company, but there are enough examples from behavioral economics that it may be worth stopping, thinking, talking about whether this approach actually 
in addition to being the right thing to do, will be profitable. Right. Maybe not tomorrow or next month, but what about a year or five from now? Right. right. It's, it's thinking of the win-win, yeah. right? As opposed to win-lose, like what, what's going to benefit me in the short term versus what benefits us in the long term. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and to be honest, man, Alan is like the king of active inquiry. I feel like everything that we do in terms of like, you know, outside of our friendship, like professionally, he always tries to figure out like how both parties can benefit. And I always appreciated that about you, especially when it comes to conflict resolution. He's always about that. Of course, you, 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 you want to find out why it is that the person thinks or feels the way they do. Right. Right. Because uh, you want to think that they're not different from you. Uh, in the sense that you know you you want to relate to them, you want to understand where they're coming from, so you could sort of come to some sort of resolution. I mean, I, I don't know, and it's especially in terms of friendship, it's not worth it to argue with a friend over either an imagined slight or even a real slight. It, it could be something that um, this is going to be a little bit of a visual, but let's say this is the slight, <laughs> but this is the friendship, right? Then. Right you know, maybe, maybe we can look past this and try to figure out what's going on to just, you know, resolve that because it's not worth it to lose a friendship, let's say over, over an argument, right. for example. Yeah, yeah. And well, at the risk of sounding really Pollyanna about this, and I'd say, you know, sometimes the slight or the argument can deepen the friendship because mm -hmm. it, it can show things like the, fr the friendship is resilient. Like, we're two different people. We all we have our emotions, things can be misinterpreted. But when it actually is resolved, it shows both friends that, wow, this really does run deep. And I'm going to be more confident now that even if I misinterpret something, or I do something that I didn't mean or intend, because of whatever stress or distraction, right. it's okay, this will be fixed. So sometimes looking for those uh, you don't want to go around looking for slights or creating them, but they just come up naturally and they can be recast as, uh, as opportunities for deepening. Yeah. Oh, and I want to shift it a little bit. Sure. Have you noticed with your, um, with your clients, there, um, any concerns about COVID-19 as far as it relates to the workplace? Um, I'll, I'll specify a little bit, like, for example, right now, uh, with more and more people getting the vaccine, um, many businesses are reverting back, uh, going back from remote to working in person. Um, have any of your clients sort of discussed concerns they might have with their employees in terms of their comfort levels with returning to the office um, as it relates to mental health? Definitely a frequent concern. And I, I've done some corporate presentations and written a couple of pieces on, on just that topic. Yeah. Uh, 2020, was a scary time, but things were clearer, right? The marching orders were clear. Go home, <laughs> don't leave your house. If you right. do put on your mask, don't go anywhere near anybody and you're not in the office. 2021, there are more encouraging signs. The numbers are down a bit, quite a bit in many parts of the country. We've got the vaccines, the economy is picking up, but there's much less clarity. Should we be back in the office or not? And that partly is about safety issues and also partly about quality of life. Companies that are too rigid about back to the office, in some cases are losing employees. Right. And you know, there's a worker shortage. So the concern is definitely coming a lot uh, uh, on both the employer and the employee side. So I'm, I'm seeing quite a bit of that. Like I said, I mean, it's, last year it was really clear, go home. Now it's, well, I don't know. Stay home, go back to the office, go in two days a week, go in when no one else is there, have part of the workforce there and not have satellite offices. It's become much less clear, uh, but that makes it even more ripe for active inquiry within mm -hmm. companies. How are we going to do this? And we do encourage employers, bosses, managers, talk with your people. How are you gonna be most productive? What works for you? How can we make sure that we hit all our benchmarks and grow the company while doing it safely and in an appealing way for, for you? Right. I've, had, I've had people tell me that they're nervous about going back to the office, not because of catching the virus, 
But a couple of people said, I'm so nervous about going back to the office because there's no way I can be as productive there. Mm-hmm. When I've been home, I'm not commuting. I'm sleeping better. I'm less stressed. In fact, sometimes I even work into the evening. I'm home. It's not a big deal. I've been getting 11 or 12 hours worth of work done. I go back to the office, commuting, distractions, too many meetings again. I'm going to get half the amount of work done. I don't know how I'm going to um, uh, get my deliverables in. Um, so it's it's a very wide range of concerns. But again, you know, we see the solution at least partly running through active inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that. And just to kind of touch on the active inquiry process a little bit more, uh, going back to Brad's story, right? The thing that I really appreciate about the process in general is the fact that there's so much compassion in it. And so when I was reading about Brad and the questions that you would ask him, that actually made me think of an experience that I had when I was in graduate school. So I remember I had a conversation with my, uh, so she was my faculty advisor and the person who ended up grading my, uh, it was, it's not a thesis. We had what's called a capstone paper, but it's pretty much the equivalent of a thesis in graduate school. So I remember I had a conversation conversation with her. And so, I mean, David, you'll know this from, I'm assuming your graduate studies where you have to pretty much, you sit in the session and they tape it. And then you have a bunch of supervisors come in and talk to you and tell you everything that's wrong with the session. So uh, we had to do mock sessions, I remember. And so we would have them, they were pretty much presented in front of the class and different people would give you feedback. And so I remember she asked me and she said, uh, you know, can you come see me in the office? Like after this class, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. And I say, sure. So we come in, we sit down and she's like, okay, so like, what did you, what did you, what did you think of the actual session right she's like before i even say anything like what are your thoughts and i said okay i know what you're gonna already say because i saw it too and i said no empathy she's like yeah no empathy she's like you literally you know for that client showed no empathy and so what i appreciated about her method is rather than just saying like hey man like you know you you might not be good at this or this might not be for you what she did was she said look you know intellectually you have it she's like we can talk about theory with you kind of all day and i really appreciate that about you she's like you have a real craving and passion for the information and the knowledge and really deeply understanding people. And she's like, I love that. Right. However, she's like, you know, it, emotionally, it's just, it's not there. And she's like, we haven't seen it over several sessions with you. So I'm just curious, you know, and I'm, I think you'd want to know this too. Is this something that you think that you can see yourself doing in the long term? Right. So why I appreciated that so much was by telling me, you know, uh, giving it to me in a way that indicated, okay, here are your strengths and here's something that's an important weakness. I appreciated that so much because instead of just criticizing me and saying, Hey man, you probably aren't going to be good at this. You know, you should look at other things. She said, no, 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 you have half of what we're looking for in this program, but you're missing the other half, right? So what is it that you think is going on? And do you think it's something that you'd want to improve on? And that's exactly what I saw when you, well, what I read rather, when you you and Ryan spoke to Brad, where the idea was like, okay, you know, if, if you're not the problem, right? If it's not so much that you're a bad leader or a bad manager and here are these great qualities about you, right? What do you think is going on? What do you think can be better, right? Because obviously you kind of see that something is wrong too, because you're not working anymore, right? You've obviously, you know, you've left this company for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. And I really love that you kind of put it in his, you kind of put the ball in his court and you said, look, you know, I want to help you figure out why or what it is that went wrong and how to kind of get you over that hurdle. It's tricky work because you don't want the person to feel shamed or, you know, unduly criticized, but you're also trying to get them to change. Yeah. Sort of in a, kind of think about it in you know dialectical behavior therapy, which is so popular these days for emotional right. dysregulation disorders like borderline personality. The dialectic is validation but change. Right. Um, so empathy, but also helping people see that they are also at least partially responsible for their condition and very responsible for their fate. And that, that is the balance of most good therapy and, uh, and coaching, that dialectic. Uh, I had a similar thing when I was in very early in my training in psychiatry, I was working in the emergency room for a few months. And I was very focused on knowing every single thing about psychiatric diagnosis, medication, hard work. I, 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 and I did very well with it. I was very rigorous. But, and I was given that feedback by the director of the department but the one thing that's always stuck with me that she said is, she said, oh, she ran through all those positive things. And then she said, how would you feel about letting your personality leak a little more? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. She, and she said, I can tell 
there's a really warm and fun person underneath that. How do you feel about bringing that person into the workplace also? And I, I never forgot it. It really freed me up to say, you know, I can be a hard worker and be knowledgeable, but I've got to bring who I am if I'm going to succeed in the work with my colleagues and with my patients. Well, that's so interesting. And so what happened? How was that sort of manifested in the future? How were you able to bring out parts of your personality? I, I, I think I, I, you know, I realized that I was having thoughts that at least to me were kind of funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I was able, I mean, part of how I dealt with it internally was to keep a bit of a sense of humor, irony, or even, you know, think about books or movies. Oh, you know, this is just like what happened in this novel or that movie, and just kind of keep it a bit lighter within myself. That was a coping skill for me. But I realized I was never, I was never saying it. So I, you know, always have to be so careful about how we joke these days. Um, but I, I did start to find ways to bring commentary um, or make a little quip uh, uh, or just be kind of fun. Or, you know, at, at a certain point in my career, I used to, I lived near a great old classic donut shop. And I started every Friday bringing donuts for the mm-hmm. team. And it became kind of a thing. Um, and uh, it was worth every dollar spent because people would start requesting the donuts. So, you know, can you bring me the, <laughs> I really love the chocolate glaze. Can you put a couple of extra of those in? And I got to know people much more. Uh, a perfect example of behavioral economics. It, you know, it cost me a bit of money every week to bring 30 donuts. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I said, worth, worth every penny. So I started to realize it's not just about me going into those rounds and being the smartest guy in the room. It was the donuts that really solidified people helping me and committing to me. The nurses would help me out more. People would share more information about what was going on. It was more fun and it was more effective. I love that. And do you find out with your patients more so than anything, they remember the way you, you treated them as opposed to maybe, I don't know, some sort of theoretical understanding of their ailments? Um, I, I, you know, I think they, patients obviously want competence and they want to be prescribed the right medication and given the right diagnosis and, and all of that. So that's kind of a baseline expectation. <clears throat> but what, to your question, what they remember in my experience is something very different than that. They don't, they're not going to say, boy, thank you so much for realizing that I should take Zoloft instead of Celexa. That was really great. <laughs> I have one patient, patient I just loved working with over many years, who um, uh, we were talking about some situation where somebody was being really obsequious to him, you know, just a brown noser, as we might say. Uh, and uh, I, I said, it sounds like He's a real sycophant. Now, this guy was going into English literature, but he didn't know the word. He's like, what the heck is a sycophant? I said, well, go read about it. It's all about figs. Uh, so he, he did that. And sycophant and figs became a big part of our interaction. So the next time we met, he came in with a bottle of fig jam for me. And... <laughs> And then he, he and his father came in for a meeting and they said, oh, how do you like the fig jam? I said, it's the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole relationship now that we've had got solidified around um, talking about sycophants and figs. He's done great. I mean, he was like, he was in the hospital. Now he's finishing graduate school. Uh, and, and, and doing great. But I, I, I'm very confident that if he were here and yes, and what do you remember about working with Dr. Brendel? He'd say fig jam. Right. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what happened with Brad, right? So, I mean, obviously now he's no longer with the company and how did you guys, I mean, first of all, like how did he move on and what did he move on to? And how did you guys get him there? Well, yeah, he, he moved on to another job in a, you know, in a, in a related field in a, in a smaller mm-hmm. company that was very collaborative. Um, where you know he really liked the people they knew his reputation they really liked him with the coaching he went in a little more relaxed and with the active inquiry skills uh so you know that that coaching engagement had ended maybe two or three years ago 
in the course of writing the book, I reached out to him and I said, I just wanted to let you know, I really appreciated the work with you. I'm gonna write a disguised version of your story, but I, I, even though it'll be disguised, there'll be no risk to your privacy or confidentiality. I would feel best if you just read it over. Uh, partly so there's a transparency about it that you know that it's mostly based on you. Um, and also because I wanna know if I got it right and how mm -hmm. it was written up. You know, was this true to your experience or is this just the David Brendel fantasy about what coaching looks like? And you really much to my delight, um, he said, he called me back a week or two later and said, that was really painful to read. Hmm. He said, but it was all true. It was all really accurate. And I, you know, you, you described it accurately. I hadn't thought about it for a while. It was painful to me to read, but it was also inspiring to see, you know, where, where I had gotten and things are continuing to go well. My son's doing well. Oh, and I wrote my, my new job. So that was, uh, you know, that was all coaching engagements don't go that way, right? Uh, no, no job, no profession leads to perfect outcomes all the time. But to me, I thought that one was worth including in the book because um, it was such a good outcome and really, really inspiring what he did. Yeah. And another one of uh, my favorite parts of the book, and I, we mentioned this with Ryan because I wasn't actually sure who wrote it. And he said that it was you. It was the, the story of the Islanders mm -hmm. and how you look at the quantitative mindset, right? In terms of obviously, you know, from a business model and, um, and you look at it in terms of like how we can gain more profit in the future. Obviously, them moving to Brooklyn was a complete disaster. So that was really cool. And I guess I wanted to ask you not to go into the story too deeply, obviously, because uh, we definitely touched on it with Ryan. Uh, but yeah. like, what was that experience like for you, like personally, for them to see them to move to Brooklyn? because obviously you're like a lifetime Islanders fan. Yes. I, I've got, I, I, I will acknowledge that of all the chapters that I worked on or wrote on my own, that was the most fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up on Long Island. I was born in 1967. In 1972, the Nassau Coliseum opened up and the Islanders moved in and they were terrible. Um, but I, they were the local team. When I was in high school, I would ride my bike over to the Coliseum. That's how close and within the community it was. And then, of course, they had their glory years in the 80s. Uh, so my experience of the Islanders is very deeply emotionally tied to where I grew up, to my parents, to my friends, to the unbelievable excitement of the four Stanley Cups in a row then the, the falling on hard times uh, in later years, and then introducing my own kids to the Islanders. We went to, I took them to their first game with my father. So we had three generations uh, in the Nassau Coliseum. It was very meaningful to me, and they kind of fell in love with hockey in general and with the Islanders in particular. Uh, so when the, and then we went to a number of games between 2012 and 15, and when the Coliseum closed, at least one of my sons experienced it on the same level of like sadness and tragedy that I did. I was astonished by that. And it was a great bonding experience for us. And then the, the whole journey of the team and the, the vagabond nature of it and the ups and the downs uh, over the last uh, six years, culminating now and then moving into a new arena. First game next week, which I'm planning to go to, uh, <laughs> in the new place, the UBS arena. Uh, it's, it's very deeply tied uh, to me, for me, to family narrative, emotion, connection with my father, and connection with my sons. Uh, and from the behavioral economics standpoint, that's why I spend too much money going to Islanders games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is, so, which is so seemingly irrational. It's completely irrational. I live in Boston. It involves a four hour drive to get down there. And I love going down to New York. I love New York. And my, uh, my, my, my father passed away a couple of years ago, but my mom is still there in the house I grew up in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we love going down for many different reasons, mainly family, Islanders. And we, we also have a Yankees connection, but uh, mm -hmm. the Yankees story has been told in so many ways uh, over so long. The Islanders story has not been told uh, in the same way. And that, that was why I wanted to bring that out in the book. 
Yeah, I loved it, man. You inspired me to write an article on why they love, why I love the Tampa Bay Bucks. So literally, almost the same yeah. exact under. And yeah. yeah, for people who know, the Bucks were like losers for years, like way before I was born. Right from 1976 to 1979, they barely even won a game. And then, like out of nowhere, right, they kind of go to the NFC Championship, and they end up losing to the Rams in 1979. And then all throughout the 80s and 90s, they're horrible. And like yeah. their fan base has to be loyal because in order to like put up with that terrible team, you literally have to. <laughs> be a loyal fan like there's just no other way to do it you know now it's easy because tom brady is there so you know it's easy to be there but back in like from the 80s and 90s and then from 2003 to about 2000 and what is it 2020 they were awful we had one playoff appearance with a playoff loss which i was there for um so but yeah you have to be really loyal and then you have this owner going back to the islanders who's thinking oh yeah yeah yeah. if we go to brooklyn we're gonna get these business types who are honestly pretty selfish they're gonna want to buy seats and care no they're going to probably be there every once in a while for business meetings they're not going to care about the actual team and especially if we're talking about like uh fan participation and noise and affecting the game those people aren't going to want to do that no no i mean if the islanders are going to be profitable it's going to be the middle class working right. people out on long island not the not the uh corporate titans in manhattan that's yeah. not the team ultimately will succeed uh, and they've figured that out, it seems, by moving from Brooklyn now to back to Nassau County, right on the border of Queens. Like I said, the, the end of the chapter ends by talking the Islanders and moving back home to Long Island, but right on the geographic and spiritual edge of New York City. And that really is a great representation of what behavioral economics are all about. The emotion is out on Long Island. The team is just a couple hundred yards into Nassau County and right across the Cross Island Parkway is Queens and New York City mm -hmm. and the, um, the financing, where the money is. And you, if for business to succeed and be satisfying, you've got to make money for sure. But you got if you want to make the money, you better um, remember who cares about spending it. Exactly. You know, I love that. I love that so much. And definitely, I think probably my one of my, if not one, I think it's even one, my favorite story of the book. So, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, personally, mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. and the buck, I, you know, I hadn't thought of that though. The, the Buck story is a really great one and the growth of um, Tampa Bay as a city. Yeah. And, and, and now it's, you know, probably the, the best sports city in the country with all the between the Lightning um, and the, uh, the Rays and the, uh, and the Bucks, of course. Uh, Boston had that status for a while. Yeah, it's moved. It's moved to Tampa. So it must be very exciting for you. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely, especially in terms of the Bucks. I mean, I don't follow as far as like baseball. I'm more of a Yankee fan, even though I'm kind of like a casual fan. I haven't been really into baseball for years. But yeah, as far as the Bucks go, the, yeah, I mean, look, it's cool for the city just to have all three, you know, I mean, the race technically never won a championship. Yeah, it's cool. But like, as far as the Bucks, honestly, man, after the championship in 03, I just I never thought in my lifetime they'd ever get back to the Super Bowl, let alone win one. And the Tom Brady situation, the fact that they got him, just super improbable. I could have never envisioned that we'd have Tom Brady as a quarterback. I had a massive bet. I think it was 25,000 to one odds with my son that mm -hmm. Tom Brady would end his career with the Cincinnati Bengals. Wow. Wow. Why'd you pick them? Uh, I, I think because I tried to think of a team that is the most um, kind of obscure and hasn't won for all these years, but the Bucks, the Bucks would have been a decent choice also because of the, uh, as you, as you described the years of suffering. Yeah. And then also with Tom, I mean, like he went to the perfect situation because they already had a great offensive line. They had terrific wide receivers, maybe the best yeah. trio in the league and their defense was up and coming. So with Brady, he actually wanted to go to San Francisco, which like now has finally come out. San Francisco would have been a terrible situation for him. Not only are they like completely injury plagued, which I mean, totally, you couldn't predict that back then. But on top of that, they don't have the type of weapons that Tampa had for him. So it was literally like a fucking miracle that, you know, though you had these two situations merge where you have this quarterback who's looking for a team and then you have the team who's literally just looking for a good quarterback yeah and it sounds like the family is happy with the weather in florida yeah maybe I'm more sure. than it would have been in the bay area yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so alan any final questions for david before we wrap up yes um if you wanted to follow you follow your work uh, where could we find you a couple of different possibilities one is the strategy of mind website strategyofmind.com um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. David Brandel. 
uh, I, I think those would be the two main ones to uh, to go with. And then from there, there are links to you know to other relevant websites, including uh, my psychiatry website uh, and executive coaching. I love that. Awesome. So, and just to tell you, I mean, honestly, Think Talk Create was probably one of my top three favorite books of the year. So mm -hmm. I'm really happy you guys wrote it. Oh, uh, well, thank you so much. Um, it was, uh, it was quite a journey writing it happy. It's out there and, um, great to know that, um, uh, it's, uh, it caught your attention and I really appreciate the invitation to come back. It's always great to talk to you guys. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. And good luck to your Islanders. <laughs> good luck to the Bucks next year. <laughs> Thank you so That's much, true. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. We're six it's and two. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Playoff run is in the works. I know. I, well, I can't. We're already in, well into football season. I hear you. So well, thanks so much, David. Okay, Talk to you soon. Again. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Okay. That was awesome. That was so fun. All right, guys. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at C's underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell. bell. And guys, again, thanks for watching and see you next time.